Hello and welcome. It's Graham Norton here. Thank you for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast with Waitrose. Here's what's to come. TV's Anita Rani gives us an insight into her life growing up and shares it in her brand new memoir, The Right Sort of Girl. To lift our spirits up, author Matt Haig is back with a brand new book, The Comfort Book. And then Jackie Clune joins us live in the studio to chat to us about Give a Little Love. But before all that, here's Maria. Hello, darling. How are you? Well, actually, you're not well because you're a victim of crime. <laughs> You're a victim of cream. I, I, I don't know why I'm laughing. No, Graham, I just arrived this morning and I sometimes leave my bicycle at London Bridge and uh, all that was left of my bicycle was a wheel. And I'm not good on a monocycle. Well, was, it, was it your favourite wheel, at least? <laughs> it was the front wheel. So, you well, know, that's the best one. Well, you say that. The other one has the gears on it. But there was a note attached. No, 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 you're making it up. I am not making it up. It wasn't from the thief, obviously. Oh, right. It was from the transport police. And guess what? They have the frame to my bike. They found it. And I spoke to the sergeant of Spoke. The... <laughs> I spoke. Yes, that's right. He backpedaled somewhat. I spoke, to, I spoke to Tim Dye, who is the sergeant of the transport police. And he used to be um, one of our colleagues at the other place that we used to work at. What, and he's retrained as a member of London Transport Police? I don't know how much training was involved. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he found your frame, don't, don't... I know, I know. And I'm going to see him tomorrow to pick it up. But now I've got to attach the frame to the bike, and that's quite hard. Um, but anyway, yes, so that's a happy ending. But then he told me that the man was seen, and he dumped it somewhere. And then now, now I feel sorry for the man. And I think, if you wanted the bike that much, you should have just asked, and I would have given it to you. It's my burner yeah. bike. You know, it's, one of, it's my burner bike. It's not like possible bike. But, you know, I use it to get around and I can't do that on one wheel, Graham, can I? <laughs> no, not even you. Not even you. <laughs> I probably have a good go. <laughs> yes, you, you've knitted a frame and you've made another wheel out of some old orange boxes. <laughs> so, now, did you see the kicky ball the other day? Of course not. <laughs> oh, Graham. You know, it's just, uh, you said last week that you were swept up in it. Clearly yeah. not so swept up in it that you want to see what's going on. Well, not swept up enough to watch it but I mean I, <laughs> I I understand that it's happening it was you know it was in my ether I tell you what I am now a little bit nervous oh Graham no, steady on now well no because I feel like the country is at fever pitch it is and I worry about whatever happens tomorrow night you kind of think if, if England win I feel like the country will explode and if they lose I just can't imagine how deflating and awful that's going to be well you know remember Remember, it's a game of football, but people say, you know, as somebody once famously said, it's more important, you know, it's more important than life itself. But that's just clearly silly. But I think, yes, you're right. In my head, I say, no, we probably won't win because those Italians are very good. But my heart says yes, but it is the hope that kills. And that's the thing. Because everybody pins their hopes and dreams onto this, you know. They, and so they take it very personally, and that is wrong. Uh, do not take it personally, people. And we've broken the bad juju of, you know, not getting past the semi-finals already. So they've won yes. already to get into the final. And Italy is, I predict tomorrow that there will be a lot of kicky of the shinny. And so possibly quite a few penalties given because both teams have very good defence and it's as we saw with the Danish team it was really hard they, England had possession but it was very hard to actually get it in, you know to convert it into a goal I thought the goalie looked very nervous well yes Schmeichel he is the son of the previous Schmeichel you thought he looked nervous is that you no, no idea I just heard somebody saying that on the radio <laughs> So um, I, I do. Wouldn't you look nervous <laughs> if you're the goalie for England? Yeah, I would look very, very oh, nervous. Oh, I know. That's why I just hope, amongst all else, that we don't have to endure the horror, the sheer horror of penalties. Even though you and I have said that's how football should be played. Yes. Just endless penalties. When poor old um, Harry Kane had to take that penalty the other day, I just, so the weight on his shoulders, and of course the goalkeeper got it. Schmeichel actually saved it, but then it. On the rebound, Kane whapped it in again. So that was quite good. But, um, you know, we sort of played quite well, but didn't get goals. 
against Denmark, but I hope tomorrow that it's a clean game. <laughs> is it, when's the semi-final? Or the other final? You know what I mean? Who comes third? When does that get decided? Is oh, that nobody, nobody cares about that. I know, but uh, Denmark versus who? Who did Italy beat? Um, Italy bets, beat Spain. Bet Spain. Uh, yes, Italy beat Spain. But really, you know, nobody wants to be playing in that match, Graham. Will you be watching the final at least, just for the atmosphere? The atmosphere. <laughs> Go to the pub. <laughs> no, that's not going to happen. Uh, no, no, no. I think you know. I've I've had my Eurovision and I've had my fun. So this is this is other people's. You fun. see, I think it's going to be an Italian triple. I think Baratina is going to beat Djokovic at the tennis tomorrow. Oh yes. And uh, uh, Italy have already won the Eurovision, yes. didn't they? Yes. And I think the kicky ball will be won by Italy. So oh. they'll have the triple, the, the hat trick of Italian joy. Imagine how much that country is going to explode. I know. The White Witch of St. Leonard's has spoken, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> she has spun her single wheel. I would love it. <laughs> and seen know, the future. Before anyone sends me hate tweets, I would really love it, love it, love it for England to win. Oh, we know that, Maria. Yeah, but, yes. you know, one has to be realistic and uh, I don't know. Anyway. I know, but, but they, I mean, I just, I guess, yeah, like I say, I just, I'm nervous because I, because... How is that nervousness manifesting itself, Graham? A slight shrug of the shoulders? <laughs> yeah, kind of like, <laughs> me. Mm, hope it's okay. Uh, no, because I didn't realise, I didn't realise that, that England hadn't been in the final of anything. Since 1066. <laughs> since 1966. <laughs> but it might as well be 1066. I mean, so for 55 years, I mean, was it the, was it the Danish captain who said, when somebody asked him, you know, do you think football's coming home and he said oh has, has it ever, ever been, been here no I think that was the goalkeeper but that was a very funny line it was funny and quite right too I think it might you know probably the luggage might get lost uh, somewhere at some airport Italian airport <laughs> perhaps I don't do you want to know what Waitrose yum yum I've been eating today Okay, go on then, tell me. Chocolate strawberry sandwich biscuit. And it is, I have properly died because it is so joyous. Because it was National Chocolate Day, apparently, the other day. Who knew? And um, World Chocolate Day. (laughs) Not even National. World Chocolate Day. (laughs) Frankly, every day is World Chocolate Day for me. And so to celebrate, that's what I hate had to eat. I mean, well, good luck. Good luck to our letter writers today because your advice when high on sugar is often very questionable. Oh. So let's see. Let's see how we get on. Virgin Radio. A letter, please. Yep. Dear Graham and Maria, we've just had our house painted, and in the chaos of it all, I've accidentally, in inverted commas, lost some of my husband's tatty ornaments because I've always hated them and thought this might be the perfect opportunity to get rid of them. He's now blaming the decorator, who is an absolutely lovely guy, and I feel a bit bad. He searched the whole house, but they're now buried deep in the rubbish, ready to be collected next week. What should I do? And that is from Diane in Guildford. Diane in Guildford, the first thing you should do is go to that rubbish and retrieve the tatty (laughs) ornaments. I don't care how tatty they are, how much you hate them. You cannot let the decorator take the blame for your evil, evil doings. Because listen... Diane in Guildford, imagine if the position was reversed. Imagine if your husband had accidentally lost some of your things. You would be fuming. And quite rightly, he is fuming and has been looking for them everywhere. You must put him out of his misery. I mean, just get them from the rubbish and then secrete them in a certain place and say, well, have you looked in the, you know, understairs, blah, blah, and then he can have found them. Oh, they must have been put there for safekeeping. What you have done, Diane and Guildford, is nasty and (laughs) evil. And even if you hate his things, you cannot throw them away. I'm suggesting, uh, going forward on this, Diane, I'm suggesting that you take his horrible ornaments and you put them in a sort of cupboard or a glass cabinet or something like that so that he can see them and then, you know, the glass cabinet can stay in the hall and then in the fullness of time it can go to his little man den or his 
office or his shed in the garden and you won't have to look at them. But you can't throw away things. that You know, he clearly loves this stuff because he's been looking all over the house. You must get them immediately. <laughs> Throwing away a partner's possessions is a dangerous game. What do you think, Graham? I think it's sweet that he's just looking for searching the house for the Where's my toys? Um, like, it seems unlikely that a husband would have tattoo ornaments. Does she mean, like, is it sporting memorabilia? What is it? We're not it, told um, the details, Graham. I mean, We're not told. Is, it, is it kind of, you know, the, the balloon seller of Antwerp in Delft or something? I mean, it just... <laughs> it could be cups that he's won for, you know, um, cricket or something back in the day or Javelin, darts. javelin. Javelin, that's always a good one. Or long, I mean, long he's long trampolining. Time. I mean, he is a champion tumbler. I've so, heard uh, that about yes. him in Guildford, yeah. Um, look, I think Diane had an idea. She saw an opportunity and she took it. And I think we can understand that, that you kind of thought, well, you know, this is this is the ideal time. He won't go looking for them. But of course, now, Diane, you realise it wasn't such a good idea. And either the decorator's going to get it in the neck because he's lost everything, even though he hasn't, or you're going to have to fess up and look awful. Because, I mean, Maria's mind, in the cold light of day, now that you've done this, it's not a great look that you just threw all his stuff out, thinking oh, he won't miss it. So, I... I mean, you know now, Diane, that he has missed it, and he's missed it so much that he's turned the house upside down. Um, You know, we all have, if you're living with somebody, there are things that will annoy you. With your husband, it's the tatty ornaments, probably many other things. And you've got annoying habits and probably a lot of tatty ornaments of your own, so you've just got to bend a little bit on this and, you know, a bit of give and take. You've got stuff that I don't like. You've got stuff that I don't like. That's, you know, a happy marriage is where you compromise. But you must immediately retrieve them from the rubbish. Do it. Do it now. Well, I would say the compromise, surely, is that she retrieves some of them. No, Graham! <laughs> then there's going to be an even further mystery. How come this has been found? But what about what about my lovely cricketing memorabilia that uh, I love so much? You know, Yes, the brass trampoline. Where's the brass where's trampoline? Where's the brass trampoline that I love? No, you can't just retrieve some of it. All of it must come back and if you're clever about it, you can put it somewhere where, you know, oh, it was put there for safekeeping and we'll never speak of it again. But think on, people who... But also, the the trouble is, now that if she finds it now, now it's going to be like bringing home the Holy Grail and it's going to be in the most special of places, all this tat. You know, it's going to be right there on the centre of the mantelpiece with a spotlight on it because (laughs) it's home, it's back, I found... I know, but this is the opportunity for Diane to get out of a very sticky hole. That's not even the right thing to say, but, you know, a deep hole, a sticky hole. Ooh. Um, Get out of a very deep hole and... Um, redeem yourself here for something bad that you've done. Um, but now you can also say, well, do we really need this to be on display, darling one? I mean, I know you're very proud of all your trophies, but perhaps if we put them upstairs in the, you know, in the loo that nobody uses, something like that, you can kind of use this, but uh, you cannot leave them where they are. Yes, I think, I mean, you could even say, I think you could even say, I did throw these out. I'm so sorry. I, well, it's too late now. Because Why now would you do that? Why would you, in, you know, get into an argument when you can just put them all in a, pl- in a black plastic bag and then put them under the stairs and say, this is probably where they were put for safekeeping. You can get out of this possible damning thing. We don't want you to divorce Diane in Guildford. We want you to have a happy life. And if that means looking at a few ugly knickknacks of your husband's, then so be it. Well, what do you think? My favourite bit of advice today will be receiving uh, to mark England getting all the way to the finals in, I was going to say the World Cup, in the Euros. Uh, we're giving away a box of six classic English ales. Uh, you know, you can enjoy watching the match, uh, you can celebrate, you can drown your sorrows, you can do whatever you like. Um, but they're classic English ales in a box, and I'll be giving that away to my favourite bits of advice. What should she do? Uh, you have spoken. Sue in Bournemouth. Retrieve them and create a new space out of sight for him to display his treasures. <laughs> yeah, just keep them in a box there. Thanks. Uh, Mark from St. Asaph, I think it's called. Uh, I would visit the local charity shops and buy a bag full of hideous ornaments, retrieve your husbands from the rubbish and display them side by side. He will hopefully not like them and that is the time to negotiate a pruning bag. Well, the, I mean, you know, he loves his ornaments. He's going around the house like a little dog looking for his favourite toy. He's, he's missing them. Uh, 
Karen in Whiteley Bay my advice read the husband's ornaments is to put a shelf in the garage or outhouse outhouse what's going on in Whiteley Bay Whitley Bay uh, I did this for my husband's football trophies 20 years later they are still there <laughs> that's nice go out and look at them I mean, I pop an umbrella on off you go uh, Jeff it's not just your house oh Jeff chucking stuff away is a deceitful thing to do do you think it's happened to Jeff? Uh, most blokes don't care about ornaments, curtains, furnishings, so to throw away the things he does care about is very controlling. You've been told. And uh, Naomi in Workshop, I had ex- the exact same problem regarding trophies. My husband had about 30 of the hideous things, so I took the little plaques off the bottom and put them all in a picture frame. He loved it and thought it was a lovely gift. I didn't have the heart to tell him I hated them. Um, that is a good practical advice, but we don't know that it is, um, what should we call it, um, trophies. They could, we don't, we just don't know what these things are. I'm going to give the uh, six uh, English ales to Sue in Bournemouth for some practical advice. There you go. Off to you. Off you go, Sue. You get the uh, six classic English ales. Virgin Radio. Uh, Okay, another letter, please. Here we go. Dear Graham and Maria, my name is Zach and I am nearly 10 years old. I have a problem with a friend at school who is quite bossy and sometimes a bit mean. I like to go on the football pitch at playtimes, but my friend doesn't like football. He always wants me to play with him and if I'm on the football pitch, he will come and moan at me or drag me off in the middle of a game. He has also started saying that some of the things I like are for babies when I know they aren't. They're for my age. I listen to your show every Saturday and Sunday with my mum and dad and I thought you might be able to help me. My mum tells me that I need to stand up for myself and tell him that I want to play football, but I don't want to upset him. My mum and dad know that I am sending this to you. What do you think I should do? And that is from Zach in Ipswich. Well, hello, Zach. Thank you very much for getting in touch with us. It's lovely to hear from our younger listeners. Um, Now, Zach, I'm going to say to you, you sound like a very nice boy because you don't want to upset your friend and yet you want to play football. I would say keep playing football, Zach. You may be playing for England one day uh, in the final of something or other. (laughs) Fingers crossed. And I think what's wrong, what's happening here, what's going on with your friend perhaps, is that um, he maybe feels a little bit jealous that you're playing football, Zach. And um, and sometimes when people are jealous or a bit nasty, it's because they feel a bit uncertain about themselves. They don't quite have the same amount of confidence. Um, maybe your friend is not very good at football, so he's cross about that, perhaps, and so doesn't want you to play. Um, your mum is absolutely right. You have to stand up for yourself, but you can do it in a way that won't upset your friend. You have to assure him or reassure him that you love playing with him, because I'm sure you do, but you also love playing football and during lunch breaks and playtime you can play football because there are lots of other people playing football but you can play with him after school perhaps I mean being bossy to you and telling you things are for babies that if you think of it from his point of view Zach that is basically him trying to be a bit mean to you to get on top of this friendship and what you want is an equal friendship Zach. Um, So you don't want him to be cross with you. And you can reassure him by saying, I love playing with you, but I also love playing football. And if you don't like the things I like because they're too babyish, you don't have to play with them. I like them. And I think they're for my age. But you can do all of this in a nice way with a big smile on your face, Zach. And thank you so much for getting in touch. Graham, what do you think? Well, I think, Zach, here's the thing. I think when you're in school, you learn lots of things. Obviously, you learn geography and maths and all those things. But you also learn some social skills and I think your friend needs to learn how to be a friend you know a friend doesn't go onto the pitch and try and uh, you know say moan at you or try and stop you playing that's not how friendships work um so he needs to learn 
that um, because it's it's too much. You can't control your friends. There's got to be kind of some flexibility. And when you when you're spending time together, it must be because you both want to spend time together. I would say uh, you're right. You sh- you should play your football, but I think maybe make a compromise. Say to warn your friends. Say, look, uh, tomorrow at break time or today at break time, I'm going to play football. And as Maria says, then you know, offer something up. But look, don't worry. Why don't we hang out after school? Why don't we do something? Da, 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 da. The other thing I think that's going to happen, and you'll find this a lot, I think, with your friends, is, you know, you're probably on your summer holidays now or just about to go on your summer holidays. And the summers are long. And when you come back, people have changed. And the fact that he's getting interested in different things than you, <laughs> that, well, that will happen. You're you know, breaking that will... this friendship up, aren't you, Graeme? You're well, no, saying... I'm, no, this... I'm, just saying, I'm just saying that when, they, when you come back in September, you think everything's going to be the same, but actually you probably watch different TV shows, you probably watch different, play different games or whatever, you know, people who are 9, 10 do. Uh, you... you, you so things don't stay the same. And I think in a way, your friend wants things to stay the same and they're, they're not gonna. So you've got to, you know, you, you've got to be a bit flexible. Friendships change over time. Yeah, but and I, I think th- when yeah. you're 10, you can't conceive of the idea that your best friend won't be your best friend forever. But I think if you're feeling that he's trying to control you, Zach, then you have to say to him, look, I have to go and play football when I want to because I want to get good at it. And that's a good way for me to get good at it. You probably will see Zach over the holidays and things might change and next year in school you may be in different classes. That is how life evolves. That's a, that's a microcosm as yeah. how life is for the rest of your life. You know, people come and people go. But you can always be nice to them uh, even if you're saying something that they might not like. Yeah, because it's a horrible panicky feeling when you feel your friend's kind of moving on from you. You know, you see your friend being very good at football, really interested in something that you're not interested in, and you see the friendship slipping away, and it is panicky, and you there is, the temptation is to kind of reach out and grab and try to ho- literally hold on to that friend. Mm. And and just, your friend is going to have to learn that's not how it works. It's, it's your first instinct. It, well, I understand why he's doing it, but it's not how friendships work. No, I um, wonder if Zach's friend is an only child. I say that just for throw it out this seems like a good uh, opportunity for me to say Graham I never want to see you again okay bye <laughs> <laughs> because we we have different interests now I I'm like cr- playing I'm football and you don't <laughs> crying That's on so the true. inside are you having an emotion quickly take something for it <laughs> but what should he do um Lots of advice on this. The My favourite advice, of course, will be getting uh, the classic ales from England. It's six classic English ales in a box, courtesy of Waitrose. Who else, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you very much, Waitrose. OK, what advice do we have for Zach? Um, Mark in Portsmouth says, perhaps Zach should offer to play something else with his friend. Uh, James and Neil from Halifax says, Zach's friend may not have any other friends to play with. I was thinking that as well. It does sound like he he really relies on Zach. So I think maybe that's part of the problem too. Might be worth seeing if Zach could introduce his friend to other people and then they will have someone else to play with while Zach plays football. James and Neil, I mean, that is good advice because I think certainly if this friend relies less on Zach, then he can relax when Zach's off doing something else. Uh, sounds like Zach's friend feels left out. Suggest a set day to play together. That's from Russell. I do. Th- I do think that is kind of reassuring. If if you don't just run off to play football, if you say, "Look, I'm going to do this, but don't worry, we'll do something later." But but see how that goes. Uh, Abby says, "Play football with your other friends. Your friend may not be sporty. I know my son wasn't. Well, I don't think he is sporty. That's certainly." Uh, clear. Uh, Lorna in the Highlands used to be a teacher and her advice to Zach is to ask your teacher if they can include some work on friendship in the PSHE lesson. I just read that out. I don't know what it means. Or assembly without picking anyone out. Your parents could also help talk to the teacher. Um, I mean, that is an idea. You don't... I suppose it's difficult for Zach because he doesn't want to escalate this problem. But equally, as I was saying, you know, you're in school to learn things. And if how to be a good friend is one of the things you learn, that's an incredibly valuable lesson. Um, The English 
ill. I'll give it to Zach. No, I won't give it to Zach. He's only he's not even ten. Uh, I'm going to send the uh, I'm going to send to James and Neil from Halifax. You get the classic ales in courtesy of a waitress. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. It's time for my first guest of the day, uh, an award-winning TV presenter, probably best known for her work on Countryfile, Watchdog, and The One Show. She now has a new memoir out called The Right Sort of Girl. Her name is Anita Rani, and she joins us now. Hello, Anita. Morning, Graham. <laughs> How are you? I'm excellent, thank you. I've had quite an amazing week. As you know, writing a book is like birthing something. And it's it's, it's been, scary, that thing, putting it out into the world. You've got to forget that people are going to read it. Yeah, it's terrifying. And I did forget that people are going to read it when I was writing it, which is why it's so honest. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me. I felt like I was flashing the world. So the whole world is seeing everything. It's all there. (laughs) Tell me this. Is it as simple as you turned 40 and thought now is the time? Or was there something else going on in your life that you became sort of interested in looking back and seeing where you'd come from? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. I think turning 40, definitely. I think just the way I was feeling about my life, generally things bubbling around. And then we obviously the pandemic happened and we were all much more insular. We were all being thoughtful and reflecting in some way, shape or form. And I went deep and spent some time looking back as someone who's not really spent much time in therapy. I just put it all on the page and it was really cathartic actually um, to do that. And um, yeah, what's come out of it is something very honest, probably a lot more honest and vulnerable than I thought it was going to be. But yeah, yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say, it is an extraordinary story because it, it's kind of a unique story. So that here you are, you are from Yorkshire, you're Punjabi, and for a lot, a long bit of your life, you felt those two things were incompatible. You felt you couldn't, you had to choose. Yeah, I mean, you know, I grew up in 80s, 90s Britain. I was born in the late 70s. And um, yeah, absolutely. I felt that I was shape-shifting and I had different identities and certain identities were dialed up or dialed down depending on who I was with. But this was sort of common for a lot of people living here. Uh, In my home, I was living a very Punjabi life. And then I'd step out and my school was very white. My surroundings were very white. And I would dial down my Indianness because I recognized that it wasn't going to do me any favours. And also on some level, no one was interested. So what I did was just try and blend in. And I guess that's why I kind of got to the point when you're in your 40s and I thought, who am I? Like I've spent so long fitting in with everyone else's expectations, whether that's what's required of me to be a good Indian daughter or a, you know, a TV presenter even. You know, I talk about how I navigated getting a, getting my work as well. And what all it's done is kind of take off my edges and made me feel not like a whole person. So it's gone. I've gone back to explore all that stuff and it has been really enlightening and hopefully it will help lots of other people. And I do talk about what it, I really explore my upbringing in a way that I don't think has been talked about in public before, certainly from the reaction I'm getting. You know, opening, lifting the lid on my Punjabi culture and just the expectation on young girls. And there is a bit, Graham, where right at the beginning, I explained that Punjabis are basically the Irish of India. We are (laughs) culturally identical, absolutely spot on. We are people of the land, rural community, big farming, you know, uh, big families. You don't know whether we're having a good time or whether we're fighting and often having a good time ends up in fighting. And, um, and people of a divided land if we want to get political. But with that, with all that beautiful culture comes guilt and shame and um, taboos that we can't talk about. So I thought I'm going to smash a few. I'm going to but, talk about it all. But also I think in that culture comes, and uh, I, you know, that, that parallel with Ireland, what comes out of it is extraordinary women, women who are so strong and deal with such difficult things. And I think it's really interesting how this book brought you closer to your grandmother than you ever were in life. Oh my goodness, absolutely. You're so right. The women, I have spent my entire life being really confused because the world around me was incredibly patriarchal. It was men that were the kind of bosses, but actually looking back, it was the women that were really in charge. And actually the men were basically toddlers my whole life because they were allowed and indulged to be able to do whatever they want. They could shout, they could scream, they could throw, they could do whatever. And these incredible warrior women just 
continued to do everything that was required to bring up families in a land that wasn't theirs in really different difficult circumstances and actually I went back to make my who do you think you are which is an amazing privilege and it really rooted me and connected me to a long line of women in my life who've never really had choice about what they do but they get on with it and I sort of go back and think about my granny who all my grandparents have sadly passed on but my dad's mum particularly who I wasn't very close to but I knew her very well because she was the one who lived in Britain they moved over in the 50s to Yorkshire and I just found myself thinking about her and her life and, and you know having to live with my granddad who wasn't particularly you know very easy to live with big drinker um you know, like all working class migrant families, he'd bring home the rage and like wield his power in the only place he could, which was at home. And my granny just had to get on with bringing up six kids in a foreign country. And I connected through her by food. I found myself making my grandma's chicken curry whilst I was writing this book. So I really conjured up the past and Graham, I wept. I wept, I will admit to you, I wept when I wrote, wrote those bits. Well, because it's that it's those sort of people in your life that you don't, when you're a kid, you don't consider them. You don't think about what they've gone through. And then in a when you're sitting down writing a book, you sort of think, oh my, like what that woman, her journey in her life was just so huge. Incredible. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. And on added to that, I mean, she had tattoos as a lot of um, Punjabi women of their generation did and I, I thought I never asked her about her tattoos and and just the way she wore her makeup and her hair and what oh, she was so stylish and I just never thought of her in those ways and actually the added complication dimension is you know the relationship with my mum her daughter-in-law who came over from India now it is the sort of basis of a lot of Indian dramas this daughter-in-law mother-in-law dynamic which often is not very difficult because I mean not it is very difficult yeah because what happens is the daughter-in-laws get the blame for everything the sons cannot put a foot wrong they are little princes so the daughter-in-laws turn up arrange marriage and then that's it whatever happens it's the daughter-in-law's fault so you know i was probably and i was very protective of my mum naturally as a little yeah. girl you are and so yeah so i was always one step removed but I, it was really quite amazing thinking about her when i was writing it and i suppose Anita, one of the one of the questions that invariably people get asked when they write a book like this is that you know obviously it's your story but you share this story with so many other people who are in your life family and friends and things uh, how did you navigate that how did you decide what could be in what couldn't be in what would hurt other people that sort of thing uh well it started with conversations with my mum and I've had a lot of discussion with my mum. And my mum is amazing because she just said, look, I fully accept that you were brought up with huge cultural pressure and I knew no better. And now you're in a place where you can talk about these things and nothing will change if you don't. So she gave me her full blessing to say what I like. Um, but you obviously have to protect people a little bit. Yeah. But at the same time, writing it in lockdown when it was just me and my fingers tap tapping away, it just came out as it did. So there's a lot in there. Maybe too much, I don't know. But, you know, from the react response I'm getting already from people, it's those bits that people are really reacting to and that are getting through where I want them to get through to, which is I was writing it for my 16-year-old self. I have never saw myself in the cultural landscape. I never heard my story. I felt that no one else knew what I was going through. So it's for all those people who feel lonely and it's to say, you know, you're not alone. And Bella Nabu Iswith has a good question about, was there anything you were surprised to find out about yourself? You know, those things when you're writing a book where you suddenly notice patterns in your life or, oh, I do that a lot or, or I make that mistake repeatedly or I always choose that thing. Did you notice those things? Um, I guess what you notice is, you know, you kind of get to a place and if you haven't really thought about how you got there, that you were always going to go and do something different. And I feel like my, I knew I was active but just my just tenacity and drive. I just always knew I needed to get out of where I was and to go and do something. And it, 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 the surprise is just the relief and the release I feel right now, having put it all on paper and uh, that it's out there. And I'm talking like, you know, I'm talking to you about this. Yeah. I've worked in the media for sort of 20 odd years and I find myself now having conversations that are so meaningful and important and true and that is, that's a revelation. 
I'm struck by your family as well because, you know, they tried so hard. You know, they sent you to what you, you describe yourself as a posh school. They sent you to this posh school and, and you've chosen this life in the media. And they must be so proud of you. But is there was there any a time in your life where there was a kind of a, a, a distance between you, where you, you'd kind of been educated away from the family or you'd, I don't know, your life had put a wedge between you and, and your family? Yeah, this is a really interesting conversation and I guess it happens and anyone listening who has bettered themselves or, you know, kind of moved on and done something more. um, And it's about, because it's a conversation about class. This book is not just about race, it's about class. And that with that can come conflict and particularly for Asian women, because I know loads of badass babes out there who are doing amazing things and often their mothers and their families just can't understand the choices they make and sometimes it means that they are completely distanced not through their own choice sometimes their families make that decision for them Uh, for me it was not that bad my parents are pretty open-minded and I have a love very good relationship with them but certainly when I was a teenager and I wanted to go and do my thing and I, I mean I spent my whole life having secret relationships that my parents knew nothing about <laughs> that's the bit i'm more most afraid of <laughs> the stuff about boyfriends coming out you know i could talk about trauma i can talk about the alcoholism i can talk about everything else but white boyfriends oh my god <laughs> um, you'll get so sent yeah, to your room in, in retrospect you'll get sent to your yeah. room <laughs> yeah absolutely um yeah the shame the shame um, and you know, because you know, you've never been shy about kind of using your voice and and highlighting other things and and being a role model. Is there a pressure that comes with that? Are there bits bits of your life where you think, isn't it enough that I just do my job and I'm successful? Do I have to be a role model as well? Yeah, no. Um, for yeah, well, actually, it was more when I was kind of coming up through the ranks and working away, and people were like, "Oh, you're such a role model." And I thought, "That's not what I am. I'm just if being a rebel and kind of doing your own thing is being a role model." Um, but now I recognise that I am one of the few people who looks like me in this position, and I've been given a platform. And I just thought again. Graham turning 40. Um, I, I don't know why I keep repeating that. I'm trying to forget. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I thought, well, what happens now? You know, I'll keep working, of course, because that's just in me and I'm, I'll never stop. But you've got, I've got to use this platform for, and use my voice now for something more than just me. And yeah, you know, part of me, there is a small part of me that's like, oh my God, I've really gone for it. And now everybody knows the details, but it's okay. Some of us have to do that to make change and that's all right. Well, continued success to you, Anita, and congratulations on the book, The Right Sort of Girl. It's out now in hardback, ebook, and audiobook. Thank you so much for joining us, Anita. Take care of yourself. Thanks Bye-bye. for having me. Thanks, Graham. Bye. <laughs> All right. Cheers. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Time by second guest of the day. He's probably best known for his best selling book, Reasons to Stay Alive, and of course, is currently riding high all over the world with his latest novel, The Midnight Light. Library. It's time to meet Matt Haig. Hello, Matt Haig. Hello, Graham. Very nice <laughs> to speak to you. Nice to talk to you too. Uh, the Comfort Book is uh, the book we're here to talk about. I mean, I, I, the, the phrase self-help makes me want to scream. Uh, yeah. How do you describe this book? Because, it, yes, it's not self-help. No, I mean, I've got a feeling it will be put in under those shelves in a few, <laughs> in a few bookshops. But no, I, I, I definitely, I, I'm like you, it, it can, can drive you a little crazy. And I think for, for me, I don't really see myself as a self-help author because I think if, if you put yourself as a self-help author, it's like saying I've got all the answers or roadmap or you're on top of a mountain somewhere um, knowing exactly what to do. And, and it's definitely not that. I just write the book I want to write at that moment. And as I wrote this, um, during the sort of stressful spring period last year, this was the book I wanted to read at that point. And I, it definitely isn't a self-help book. It is hopefully a comforting book, like lots of books can be, but it is not a self-help book, I wouldn't say. And it's, I mean, it is so packed with kind of truths, if you know what I mean. Like, the, I hadn't got the book yet, and uh, the day it published on your Instagram, you just posted a picture of one page, and it's that page, yeah. A Little Plan. And I just read that. I thought, well, what else is in the book? Because that's all you need to know. <laughs> that's everything you need to know right there. But it's like every page is is like that. How do you, were all of these, was most of this book kind of on bits of paper in your office already, or did you sit down? To, how do you do this? 
Um, well, you know, I've often written things that this is going to sound really, I'm going to turn it into a therapy session now, but I have sort of always written um, bits down um, for my mental health. I mean, even before I was ever published, um, you know, I, I, as I wrote in another book, um, I had a, a, a full-blown breakdown in my 20s and um, was recovering in my early 30s. And I used, writing used to be a part of um, my therapy, uh, either writing what I was feeling or writing... Um, things I sort of realized or had sudden realizations as I was getting better or it could be quotes from other people and actually the act of writing it sounds so corny but the act of writing actually helped you know it made me feel better it was externalizing something very internal so I've always done that but I don't think without the sort of wild year that we've just been through I would have had the impetus to actually put all these sort of disparate elements together into one book the comfort book um i just finished um writing the midnight library i had a lot of kind of nervous energy i was overdosing on news like a lot of us were and i i just wanted to write something that was very calming hopefully easy to read certainly easy to write because i didn't have to um structure it you can pick it up at page 79 and not have to know what was on page 78 you know it was a total free form um dip into it any which way you like kind of book and one of the things I think it's, it's, it's I mean, it's every page is full of, is, like I say, is there is a truth on that page. And it's one of those books where every everything you read, you kind of think, well, uh, wow, I knew that. I didn't know I knew that. But actually, as I read it, I do know that. I know that is true. And it, it gives you that clarity. And one of the things you talk about is how depression lies to us. Depression tells us things will never be better again. This is how things are going to be forever. And I suppose being young having your big breakdown in your 20s you really do believe that lie are you able to to spot it now can you tell when you're about to hit a a patch yeah definitely a bit more i mean because obviously the first time it happens to you you think well i don't know how i got into this mess i don't know why i feel like this so i don't know how i'm going to get out of it and you can very easily imagine uh, and depression will encourage you to believe that you'll be like that you'll be stuck inside that moment um forever and i certainly felt like that and yes for a little while i was suicidal and, and the reason wasn't because i had a sudden death wish it was because I literally didn't know how I could go on living like that, imagining nothing would change. And obviously, um, things did change and things do change in everyone's life. But it can be very easy when you're locked inside a particular low point um, to feel like this is inevitable. It will always be the same. But, you know, if, if it had been different before, it's very likely going to be different again. And even if, you know, I will always have to be very mindful of my uh, mental health situation. But... Um, you know, there's a difference between that, having, having a condition and letting it um, be exactly at the same flat state forever. I mean, you know, it, everything, you know something can always change. It can be your attitude um, towards it can change, even if you're having anxiety. So, yes, if I'm in, that's a long-winded way of saying, if I'm in an anxiety dip now, the voice of depression may start to come in, but I'll also know that... Um, it has been there many, many times. And I've practiced falling down so many times, but I've also practiced sort of getting back up on my feet again. And we should say, Matt, you, you mentioned suicide there. And obviously there's organizations like Samaritans.org. But I, when Reasons to Stay Alive came out, you were sort of overwhelmed by people coming to you looking mm. for help. Who did you direct people to? Um, well, I... I yeah, I gave all the numbers. So obviously Samaritans and I mentioned I had a, a auto response because I at one point I was getting so many messages a day. So I directed to um, Mind and Time to Change. But there's so many now. I mean, we're so lucky in 2021 in one sense because there's so many great organizations for mental health. I mean, for young people, there's a brilliant organization called Young Minds, um, which does wonderful work. There's... Um, suicide-related uh, charities like Papyrus and Grassroots. Now, here's the thing I want to ask you. You you talked there about uh, you had a blip, you were having um, uh, panic and anxiety, yeah. and I wondered what role does success play in your mental health? Do you find comfort in the validation of strangers or does it make things worse for you? Um, well, yeah. I mean, famously, it, it doesn't really... Um, help matters necessarily if you've got 
thousands of people having an opinion on you at any any one time obviously i mean of course you know i i'm i'm very lucky to be able to do a job that I enjoy doing and I, I've got a lovely publishers who, who give me the sort of creative freedom and stuff but yeah the public facing side of it can be a little bit prickly sometimes especially when you're writing within an area that people have strong things about like mental health obviously and and if you are yourself going for a mental health dip and then people are sort of raising you up as a, a spokesperson or an ambassador for something when you don't necessarily always feel comfortable um talking about it because of whatever your mental health is doing at that point when yes it does become um tricky sometimes and uh, obviously you know a lot of the times when i'm talking um about comfort I, i'm very much reiterating to myself um not to pursue the validation of um strangers or not to go you know i'm I basically feel if you wouldn't actually go to someone for advice um then why take criticism from that person you know we all do it but you know if you start to logically analyze it it doesn't really make much sense no it does not (laughs) it must quickly mention um the midnight library which is just i mean still uh, i think still on the new york times bestseller list isn't it and and certainly here it is um and am i right there's a a movie on the way um well yeah, very, very um, embryonic early stages in terms of the Midnight Library. But there is, yeah, there's a script being written for that. And also, um, yeah, there is an actual movie that's been made and that's coming out this year. That's for one of my children's books, A Boy Called Christmas, which is exciting. So that's heading to cinemas and TVs uh, later this year. Fantastic. Well, listen, Matt Haig, thank you so much for sharing the comfort book for, with us. It is it is exactly what it says on the tin. It is a comfort book. That's what it is. Uh, and it's out now in Harback. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt Haig. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Still to come, show chef Martha Collison joins us to talk about what she's been cooking up for us and how to impress friends and family for the summer. But first, Jackie Clune joins us live in the studio to discuss her brand new novel, Give a Little Love. Hello, Jackie. Oh, Graham, how lovely to hear your voice. Ah, no. Ah, now you. <laughs> uh, well done, you, for uh, working so hard. Because I felt like I'd just finished uh, your first novel when the second one arrived on on my desk. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, so, and it's the first book I've read. I've read other novels that have referenced COVID and all those things. But this is the first book I've read that's totally set in it. It's kind of, that's its premise. Did you write it in real time? I did, yeah. Um, it got to about April last year and I quickly realised, because I sort of mostly do sort of acting these days, showing off for a living. And all the theatres were shut, so there was nobody to show off to. And I quickly thought, well, I've, I've got to write. I've got to write through this period just to kind of, you know, get through it. It was just so horrendous the first couple of months. Even looking back now, you think, wow, we were really only allowed out for an hour a day. So I had plenty of time to, to write it. And what prompted it really was one day I was listening to the radio probably in about April last year and they said that um, the, the, the demographic for people that were succumbing to COVID and getting really ill or dying at that point was sort of older fat men and and in the same news bulletin there was a piece about the fact that um, a woman called the domestic violence helpline every 30 seconds um, during the first month of lockdown and in my mind those sort of two fact started me off on this idea of a woman who loses her husband to COVID but through sort of looking back on their marriage she realises that it wasn't actually that good and he was quite coercive and quite controlling and so out of the pandemic comes this new life. I'm really passionate about stories that have middle-aged women centre stage because you know quite often I'll be watching TV with my kids and I've got a little joke with them you'll see some men in the front of the shot sort of you know doing all the important talking and there'll be sort of a hatchet faced old bag in the background doing some paperwork (laughs) and I'll go look at her that's my part Uh, (laughs) so I I like writing stories that have women front and centre and um, yeah this was just an opportunity to sort of use the cipher of Covid it's very much a backdrop I mean there is some sort of um, sort of uh, sarcastic commentary about the way certain people manage the pandemic um, the sort of competitive clapping for carers and stuff that happened on every front doorstep and and some of the sort of more um, kind of uh, 
uh, questionable decisions by the government. So there's a bit of a political context, but really it's about a woman finding herself, finding her identity and the kindness, the extraordinary charities that I got involved with locally in East London, where just ordinary people formed this sort of mum's army and went out and did incredible things, you know, bake sales, taking hand cream to NHS wobble rooms, um, you know, organising clothes drop-offs for the homeless, food for the homeless, making sure homeless people had shelter. And it really was like a socialist spring, you know, funded by the Tory party. It was quite extraordinary. And I just wanted to sort of write through that period of time because I thought it was a really interesting time for us all. And actually, I think particularly in London, where we don't think so much in terms of community and, you know, I think in smaller places, that's always there. But it was amazing in London to see signs up saying, if, if you know, if you can't get out, ring this number and we'll bring your shopping around or yeah. we'll, you know, walk your dog or we'll do it was sort of you didn't expect it in a big city and it was moving. It was and coming out onto your doorstep to clap and seeing people that you'd never met before and finding out you'd lived alongside them for 10 years in London. That, that's just the way we live. And I think, I really hope that out of all of the awful stuff that's happened, that remains, that communities have found each other now and realised the strength that we have. I mean, no matter what's going on on the global scale politically, and I do believe in, you know, um, sharing wealth and all of that, but that's not happening anytime soon. So in the meantime, what are we going to do? Bitch about it or help each other? And I really hope it's the latter because it makes you feel good as well. I mean, I got involved in some brilliant charities and um, there was one uh, where we were collecting gifts for Christmas and seeing these little children coming up and saying... I've emptied my piggy bank to buy selection boxes for kids who are less fortunate than me. And you're like, oh my God, that just made my Christmas. It was just really lovely. And what was it like in your house? Because you have... Uh, 50 four, million children. Yeah, no, four. Is it four? <laughs> it's four, four yes. Four. But uh, now you're going to tell me they're all, you know, they're 35. <laughs> but but are they, are they all living at home? They are, yes. The eldest, is she's, she's nearly 18. And then I've got the triplets. Oh, yes, that was a fun day in the sonographer's room. Um, who are 16 now. Yeah, Tady, Frank and Orla. So, yeah, it's a busy, busy house. We had fun during lockdown. You know, that, I mean, that, you know, that just adds to everyone. So, I mean, it's lovely to have company, I guess, <laughs> Just mm. endless company. Endless uh, company. And they only seem to like three things on television and they watch them on loop. That's the oh. American office, American horror story and friends. So you sort of like, go to your room and stay in your room and isolate there because I cannot watch friends anymore. <laughs> and also, I mean, did you make them cook and things? They did, actually. They started cooking. Oh, um, that's good. The boys got rather too involved in gaming and would throw all-nighters with their mates. But you just sort of thought, do you know what, whatever keeps them happy right now, because it was a really tough time. Yeah. And I feel, Jackie, we haven't uh, sold the plot enough, because we made it sound like just somebody dies, and then there's some volunteering. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, so it, it is a proper twisty-turny uh, plot, about the, kind of focused on the dead husband. Yeah. Well, she decides to switch on his phone um, some weeks after he dies, and what she finds there sends her off into a, a real spin because it appears that he had another secret uh, a, a lover on the go um, and she goes into a tailspin and then she starts online dating and that was a fun day of research I had to make a sort of fake profile of a middle-aged woman looking for love late in life and there are some shockers out there Graham um, <laughs> uh, I still kept my profile up because it's quite amusing to get the photos through sometimes um, and so she goes on this sort of mad goose chase trying to find somebody new and then a shocking revelation comes to light about the identity of this woman um i won't give too much away but yeah there's a big plot twist halfway through and that revelation just guides her in a totally different direction in her life and Josephine Kent has a good question about uh, changing the story uh, around the regulations changing because you know, <laughs> yeah. were you were you getting ahead of the curve or you, were you behind the curve? I had to hand it in just before Christmas, and then on the nineteenth of December, they decided that you weren't allowed to have anyone round your house on Christmas Day. So I had this cosy Walton's ending <laughs> where I had to suddenly just like crack, had to completely rewrite the end of the book. Yeah, that's very true. Actually, I'd forgotten about that. And, uh, and yeah, because also it, looking forward to 2021 um, and there is a sense that, you know, 
it's all over. <laughs> like, yeah, not, yeah, not so much. It's July now. Well, that was my worry a bit. I thought, well, you know, what if this book comes out and everyone's like, COVID, what's that? Don't remember that. But of course, that's not the case. And Aren't uh, you lucky? Yes, I am. I was like, yay, the stats are going up. My book will sell more copies. Yeah, I'm, I'm so zeitgeisty. Yeah. <laughs> so zeitgeisty in this COVID pandemic that's growing and growing and we just can't contain, yeah. And in terms of uh, uh, sort of writing and acting, what's the story? I mean, would you drop your laptop in a heartbeat if an acting job came along or have you got the bug for the writing now? I, I really love the writing, but it's very different. I mean, you know, Graham, you're a brilliant writer. I've read your stuff and it, it's a very different pleasure, isn't it? It's a different part of your soul that yeah. gets fed. Um, I still really love showing off. I've, I've just been in Motherland, you know, the BBC series that's um, third series has just been out and I play the hatchet-faced school secretary, Mrs Lamb, in that. And I love doing comedy on television, but I really miss the theatre. I'm hoping something good comes along soon. It's something that you can sort of pick up and put down as and when other jobs come in. But, yeah, I think I'll, I'll always write. Yeah, but it's, it, I mean, it's, what's good about writing is it, it's something to do when you are alone. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I can lock myself in my shed, which I got specially built so that I can lock it from the inside and none of the kids can come and make me put pizzas in the oven for them. Because they can do that themselves. Well, you say that, but can they... <laughs> Not uh, without what, burning themselves. Uh, uh, paint a picture. Uh, how big a deal is the football tonight in the Poon household? Um, well, we're sort of a rugby family, really. I'm I'm um, one of the vice presidents and the women's chair of Eaton Manor Rugby Club in East London. So quite weirdly, for someone who'd never touched a rugby ball, I just got really into it. So I love it. But I, I am really into the football and it's going to be absolutely fine tonight because what I'm going to do is something... I'm going to cast a spell on the Italian team so that weirdly, just as the ref blows the whistle for kickoff I will my footballing ability will be visited upon all of the Italian players and it will be extraordinary scenes of you know fantastic Italian players not able to kick a ball or uh, save a save a shot or and the the commentators are going to be saying this is extraordinary it's like they've never played football before because it's going to be me inside their bodies so England are going to absolutely walk it it's all going to be fine (laughs) That, that I'd love if that happened. Wouldn't it be hilarious, though, if <laughs> I could make be, that happen? That is the Disney movie of the <laughs> yeah. Euro final. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Uh, uh, here's, well, no, actually, do you know what? It'd be kind of boring. It'd be funny for, like, a few minutes, and then you would get, like, because it goes... That's the thing about football. It goes... Oh, so and the and the extra time it's like I'm not that much of a fan that I enjoy the extra time. Get to the penalty shootout. Yeah, I don't mind if the other team win. Can I just go and put the kettle on now? <laughs> I'll be back in a minute. Tell me, tell me who won. Yeah. Uh, Jackie Cloon, give a little love is out in hardback now. Lovely, lovely, lovely to talk to you, and congratulations on the books. Oh, thank uh, well you, my done. darling. Thank you. All right, take care of yourself. And you. Bye bye. Bye bye bye. Finally, show chef Martha Collison joins us here in the studio to talk about what she's been cooking in the kitchen and inspire us with what recipes we can cook up with ingredients from Waitrose. Hello, Martha. Hello. Now we set you a challenge. It's the big match tonight. What can we eat while the match is going on? What have you come up with? So you're right is the big match this evening and I I love a themed event as you were kind of saying earlier if you're not into I'm not a huge football person I have been watching along this year because I feel like there's not much else to do but I love to make food that goes with an event stirring words for the team Martha <laughs> yes stirring so words. excited <laughs> yeah, <No>. yeah. <laughs> but I thanks love for to the make, support Martha <laughs> I love to make themed food even for things like Eurovision I love oh, yeah. to make things that represent the country so I've gone along that line today and I've made something which is a bit of a hybrid Italian and English so today we've got a full English pizza (gasps) okay (laughs) one of the only things I could think of where England come out on top (laughs) of Italy so (laughs) I'm hoping it bodes well (laughs) yeah so it's a it's a pizza let's just stress this it's a pizza base but very much England on top England Absolutely. on top, all the way. And now, you know, there's options with this, aren't there? You can do the, you can do it the hard way, which you did, or there is a lazy way. So, uh, give us the the choices. There are indeed. So, yeah, making pizza from scratch is easier than you might think, to be honest. As long as you're is ready it? to put in a bit of graft <laughs> with a bit of kneading. Um, but as this evening is coming round quick, if you've not quite got time to make your dough from scratch, Waitrose sell pre-made dough. You can find it in the freezer section, and then yeah, just leave that to prove they've done all the hard work for you. But I made my dough last night, left it in the fridge. That's a good tip if you're ever stressing about making dough in the heat of summer. Make it the night before, just before you go to bed. Whack it in the fridge and it will be really nicely proved, ready to go when you want your pizzas the next day.
So pizza base, is it a yeast? So when you say prove, is that a yeasty thing? It is, yes. So you want a strong bread flour, so it's got all of that high gluten, which is going to make it nice and stretchy. So you can do the fancy fling in the air like the uh, pizza chefs do. <laughs> then you want yeast, a little bit of olive oil and warm water, a tiny bit of salt, and that's it. That's your pizza base. Well, when you put it like that, it does sound easy. But just the just the word yeast makes you think, oh, that's going to be quite hard work. Um, already, I'm thinking, in the freezer section, I think that sounds like quite hard work. But okay, so we've, 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 we've made our base somehow and we've rolled it out. Uh, are you doing little individual ones or you do big one, great big one? So I've done great big ones. I think when you've got people coming over, you're watching something on the TV or anything like that, you want a big pizza where everyone can have a slice. So I've gone with a gigantic pizza to be honest we've made a few the team have been really enjoying these this morning so um you've got your pizza base then you want to spread it with a little bit of tomato puree on passata it's very easy to go overboard i think most people when they make homemade pizza at home put way too much tomato sauce on then that base will be really soggy (laughs) and really difficult to make crispy so be a little bit uh, sparse with your tomato sauce and then okay. go hard on the toppings. So uh, today I've cooked up, you want to cook your toppings first because pizzas don't take very long to cook. So I cooked some Waitrose Cumberland sausages, some nice English back bacon, a little bit of black pudding, got some tomatoes going on there as well um, and some mushrooms. So cook those all up beforehand and then when you're ready to bake, crank your oven up as hot as you can get it. Think about when you go to a pizza restaurant, they have those kind of furnaces at the back. So you want yeah. something super hot, hot as your oven can go um, and then make up your pizza put all those toppings on top I've got English cheddar cheese on the top as well as a bit of mozzarella um, to get the English thing going full on whack it in the oven takes about 8-10 to minutes until it's nice and bubbly and puffy and then I've topped it with a little bit of brown sauce for a bit of tang and a bit of parsley as well Uh, Now could I could I make a suggestion Martha I know I'm I'm not a show chef but could we crack an egg on it before we put it in the oven Do you know what I forgot to mention the egg yes perfect suggestion and voila (laughs) there There it is is. (laughs) Great minds great minds An egg in the middle yeah the egg does a word of warning the egg makes a little messy so uh, make sure you serve napkins with your pizza Um, but yeah the egg nice golden yolk I've gone with a Burford brown egg so these are kind of top quality Clarence Corp eggs and the yolks are so golden so they just make your pizza come alive yeah but it gives you that kind of drippy tip in your oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) but delicious 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 and uh so uh, what did you say you just put it in for what eight ten minutes so all in all i mean you know half an hour you could crank one of these things out couldn't you yeah absolutely absolutely as long as your dough is ready then you could good to go it's a half time kind of snack Oh, yeah, or during, I'd say. I think you could tear away at that. And yeah, yeah, delicious. So start making it about half seven and you'll be there. <laughs> um, thank you very much. You are a genius. I'll talk to you uh, next week when you'll have more recipes featuring products from Waitrose. Thank you so much. Thank Bye-bye. you. Thank you so much for joining me for the Graham Norton Radio Show podcast with Waitrose. I'm back on Virgin Radio from 9.30 on Saturday morning. And don't forget, the next episode of the podcast will be out first thing the following Monday. Speak to you then. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio.